Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the same day's news can include a story noting anti-abortion anger as an element in the domestic extremism the FBI is tracking, and one in which Joe Biden's press secretary answers a question about the policy that denies U.S. funding for foreign groups that perform or counsel, refer, or advocate for abortion by reminding reporters that Biden attends church regularly. And an obituary of anti-choice agitator Joseph Scheidler, a funny, self-deprecating guy whose harassment of women at clinics the New York Times describes as, quote, finding women who were considering abortions and persuading them not to follow through. Close quote. Amid all of that, a book review tosses off a reference to the post-World War II period as a time when surprise pregnancies were an obstacle to a better life and abortion was taboo. We'll talk about actual realities of present-day abortion with Kimberly Inez McGuire, executive director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Also on the show, after California's Proposition 22 allowed app-based companies like his to skirt basic labor laws, the head of DoorDash declared the company, quote, looking ahead and across the country, ready to champion new benefits structures, close quote. And they, quote, look forward to partnering with workers, policymakers, community groups to make this a reality, close quote. One glimpse of what that partnering looks like. Albertson's Grocery, after months of calling its workers first responders, made what executives called a strategic decision to fire their unionized deliverers and contract their work out to apps including, well, huh, DoorDash. We'll talk about defending workers in the digital economy with Open Society Economic Inequality fellow Bama Athreya, who also hosts the podcast The Gig. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. A recent study out of UC San Francisco showed that depictions of abortion in TV and movies don't square with reality, in part because, in the last year anyway, only one character was parenting at the time of their abortion, while in real life the majority of women getting abortions have children. News media on abortion can be distorted, too, to the extent that the focus is overwhelmingly on Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court. As important as it is to fight for Roe, it's more important to understand that for many women, overturning that ruling would not suddenly shut down access to abortion, simply because many women already lack that access that makes a right a reality, even with Roe in place. And recognizing that reproductive rights are not equally afforded is itself just a step toward an expansive understanding of reproductive justice that goes beyond abortion. How do we get to that at once bolder and more grounded conversation? Joining us now is Kimberly Inez McGuire, executive director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Kimberly Inez McGuire. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, we've had a public conversation about whether women should have the legal right to abortion. As of 2019, public support for legal abortion remains steady and high at around 61 percent. That's according to Pew. So to keep hosting a debate about whether abortion should be legal is already kind of regressive. It's also no friend to real women looking for real options, the women who call the hotlines every day. It's not that Roe doesn't matter to them, but there are just layers and layers, aren't there, between what the court says women can legally do and what they can actually do. Absolutely. The gulf between the theoretical legality of abortion in this country and the lived experience of people trying to get an abortion is wide and getting wider. And so much of the restrictions on abortion are rendered invisible because they only appear based on who you are, where you live, and frankly, how much money you have in the bank. So when we look at the layers upon layers, you know, we go back to the Hyde Amendment, which is older than I am, and it's a federal policy that prevents Medicaid from covering abortion. And it was passed in short order after the Roe v. Wade decision. And so what happened was the Supreme Court said abortion's legal. Folks rejoiced, right? This was a big deal. And Almost immediately thereafter, the door was closed on any low-income woman who gets her insurance through Medicaid. And so for decades, if you are using Medicaid as your insurance, abortion access is not real to you. We then have seen since 2010 this newer tsunami of abortion restrictions, literally hundreds and hundreds of new abortion laws passed in almost every state in the country. There's a handful of states that have sort of held the line. But all over the country, we are seeing restrictions on who can get an abortion, where they can get an abortion, restrictions designed to shut down clinics, restrictions targeting young people, right? And this has created a labyrinth for anyone who's just trying to navigate getting basic health care. And so, again, we, we have this sort of legal fiction of Roe that says abortion is legal, but if you can't afford it, if you are young and can't get your parents to sign off on your decision, if there's not a clinic in your neighborhood, if the clinic in your neighborhood has been shut down by a state legislature that was targeting them, all of these things can become insurmountable barriers in the real life experience of trying to end a pregnancy. Well, Roe versus Wade passed in 1973, and, and there was Hyde Amendment in 1976. And it's important, I think, to remember that Henry Hyde, the Republican congressman from Illinois, and the supporters of the amendment were very clear that they wanted to make abortion unavailable for all women, but it was only women receiving Medicaid that they had power over. Getting rid of the Hyde Amendment it's not permanent law, you know, it can be eliminated. That's one concrete action that President-elect Biden could take right now. It seems like as we record on the 28th, we've just had a statement and no mention of Hyde. You know, we are hopeful but cautious. You know, as many folks know, President Biden has had a somewhat public evolution on the Hyde Amendment, right. where after, you know, frankly, the outcries, you know, nationwide outcries during the campaign, he then made clear that he would be committed to ending the Hyde Amendment. So we're grateful that he took that position publicly, but we also are really clear that accountability is going to be necessary to make sure that that promise is kept. And we have seen a few 
statements from the administration so far around the topic of abortion, they frankly have not gone far enough. The Biden administration statement on the Roe anniversary, in addition to not actually using the word abortion, which is concerning in and of itself, did not make clear a commitment to ending the racist Hyde Amendment, which, you know, as you pointed to, with the pro-abortion rights majority in the House and the Senate with the White House, there is no reason that Hyde or any a coverage ban should appear in the next round of federal budgets. So now is the time for the lawmakers, the president and those in Congress who have said that they oppose Hyde. Well, they've got the power now and people across the country are watching to see how they use that power. I just want to add that Hart just did some research, significant majority, 62% of voters favor Medicaid coverage of abortion services as against a 38% opposed. There's majority support among men, women, all age groups, all education levels. Well, words are powerful. It does matter that Biden didn't use the word abortion in his statement on the Roe anniversary. And framing is powerful, which is why I appreciate the way that you and Urge and others describe legal abortion as the floor, not the ceiling, as part of that expansive understanding of reproductive justice. Can you talk a little bit about how we talk about abortion and why it matters? What are you trying to do with that floor, not the ceiling phrase? Absolutely. So I think there's a few key pieces here. One is about how we show respect to people who have had abortions. And first and foremost, those who have had abortions deserve the dignity of recognition. We need to use the word abortion. We need to talk about abortion as necessary health care and as a social good. Anything less, honestly, disregards and disrespects the one in four women in this country who have sought out this health care. So that's the first piece is, is just saying the word abortion. It's not a bad word. It's a, you know, a word that's saved people's lives and helped shape better futures. The other piece around the floor, not the ceiling, is for people with economic resources, what is a legal right on paper has so much more meaning than for people who are blocked because of economic barriers, because of racial barriers. So we look at something like abortion access, even before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal across you know, large swaths of the country, the reality is that women of means have always been able to get abortions. That has always been the reality for people with money. The vision for reproductive justice is not just, you know, you have a theoretical right to abortion if you can fight your way through all of the muck and the, the restrictions, but reproductive justice means that if you've decided to end a pregnancy, you can do so safely, with dignity, without upending your family's economic security, and without being subjected to, frankly, misogynist hate speech and stigma. When media say there are economic issues like the minimum wage and then there are cultural issues like abortion, I want to scream, you know, um, <laughs> you know, Me too. <laughs> you know, and then also in terms of media, I just want to say the pretend Healthcare concerns that get credulously entertained for why it's okay to, for example, force women to see a provider in person to get a medical abortion, even in a pandemic. I think that's equal to the years of credulous parroting of bogus claims of voter fraud. You know, I mean, I mean, media know these restrictions. Absolutely, they know these restrictions don't protect women. You know, the <laughs> the Supreme Court case on on mifepristone is called FDA versus American College of Obstetricians. 
physicians and gynecologists for Pete's sake, but they include these defenses of these things as some sort of balance, you know, you know, well, a politician said them, so scribble, scribble. And then also, you know, somehow women's human rights have to be balanced against those who think they shouldn't have them, you know, but, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I must say, you know, I think the medication abortion example is such a salient one right now because, I mean, this is where we see the pre-existing crisis of abortion access that was created by Hyde. It was made worse by all of these state laws that have been passed over the last 10 years. But then you have the pandemic, right, which is both creating a public health crisis that can make it dangerous for someone to try to get to a clinic, particularly if they have to take the bus, particularly if, you know, they, they don't have someone to watch their kids, right? And an economic crisis where more and more women and families are being pushed into unemployment, pushed into homelessness, do not have the funds to pay for an abortion, particularly if it's not covered by Medicaid. And so in a time when there has been bright moments of innovation in using telemedicine for a whole range of healthcare. I mean, I think about, you know, everybody I know who's in therapy who, mm-hmm. you know, used to go to offices and everybody, everybody's on video therapy now, right? right? My parents have done video visits with their doctors for a whole range of health needs. And thankfully, there was a window of time in which these onerous restrictions saying that somehow you have to go to a clinic to have a conversation and be handed a pill, those restrictions were lifted, which made all the sense in the world, especially in a pandemic, because if all I need is a conversation and a pill, well, that can be a video call and a package in the mail, right? right? There's no reason for me to go to a clinic. And unfortunately, because of aggressive anti-abortion actions by the Trump administration, that's now gone. And the Biden administration needs to take action to address that. This is an emergency public health measure. We have got to get this done now. And yes, we need in the nearer term, we need to look at how these restrictions are harmful year round and all the time. But right now, we have got to stop forcing people to go to a clinic when they don't have to, just to get an abortion pill and have a conversation with a provider that could easily happen over telemedicine. Well, finally, after the setback of Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, Urge put out a statement saying young people were undaunted and that there's a rising wave of young people ready to fight on this set of issues. And it's, in fact, growing. Um, So let's end on that energy and that looking forward. There's no use pretending these aren't really rough times, but you do see real reasons for hope out there. Absolutely. And there's so many places we could look, but I'll I'll point this in one direction. It was young Black women and young Black people in Georgia who sent a pro-choice Black preacher to the U.S. Senate and completely turned the tide for U.S. policy and power for the next couple of years. That speaks to the current power and ultimate transformative potential of young people, in particular young black and brown people who care about abortion, who care about racial justice, who care about economic justice, and by the way, don't see these as separate issues, Mm -hmm. and not only created the outcomes of the 2020 elections, but also are ready and willing to hold those elected officials accountable, because it's not enough just to make a promise. Those promises need to be kept. And it's not enough even to get back to a pre-Trump status quo. We know we deserve more. And young people are speaking out and making their voices heard. And that gives me hope every single day. 
We've been speaking with Kimberly Nesmaguire, Executive Director of URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. You can follow their work online at urge.org. Kimberly Nesmaguire, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash spent some $205 million on California's Prop 22, the most money ever spent on a ballot initiative. For big money, these so-called gig economy companies won themselves a big prize, the continued ability to evade labor laws by deeming their drivers independent contractors rather than employees. When the initiative they crafted and promoted exhaustively passed, with attendant measures making it near impossible to overturn, the New York Times noted ominously that it opens a path for the companies to remake labor laws throughout the country. Paths, of course, can be blocked. What it would take to do that in the case of what she calls the lawless digital economy is the topic of a recent article by our next guest. Bama Threya is an economic inequality fellow with the Open Society Foundations and the host of the podcast, The Gig. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Bama Threya. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you, Janine. Well, I think we can trace the contours of the problem in your recommendations for response. So I want to get into that. But just to say first, your starting point is that the work now calls both for people working on labor policy and people working on digital policy, and emphatically those two groups working in concert. Yes, I think we have had a lot of great work done in recent years by labor law advocates, groups like the National Employment Law Project come to mind on the issues of misclassification and how gig work is really just disguised employment. Not to repeat all of that great work, but I think it is constrained by the lack of a bridge between the labor rights advocates and the people who really understand the digital rights aspects of the problems and what these companies are really doing. Well, the piece on inequality.org is titled Five Ways the Biden Labor Team Can Defend Workers Against the Lawless Digital Economy. Folks can find the full piece online, but let's at least touch on those ideas. And number one is really number one. (laughs) Number one is the simplest piece of this, and it's something, again, that, frankly, the entire U.S. labor movement has been calling for for years and that is raising the minimum wage. You know, all of this is actually quite simple. None of it is hard. It's just lacked political will. We know that the reason why a lot of people take on gig work, they've reported it themselves, I was even part of the Prop 22 campaign to my amazement, is that they can't survive on full-time jobs. And so in addition to working full-time, a lot of people, including a lot of the drivers that I interviewed, were taking on extra hours, and that really has benefited the gig companies. But if those people were making minimum wage and if they had access to affordable child care so that they were unconstrained to leave the home and enter the formal labor market, that's a big piece of what is needed. Now, as I said, that's not the whole piece. That's the piece that I think is probably best articulated by people who are in the labor movement or labor advocates, labor law specialists. 
There are a couple of other pieces of this. I just mentioned misclassification ending disguised employment. That, too, is something that I think really, you know, I'm not the expert. There are lots of great people out there that have the recommendations and the proposals that are needed and that are already in law. And so a lot of this is actually just about having a labor department that's willing to enforce what's already in law and misclassification. Where the the ideas are that are new and specific to the digital economy have to do with data and data rights. And should I just get into that? Sure, yeah. Okay, so I think one of the things that labor advocates have not yet really gotten control of is that the labor itself is only a piece of what these companies are capitalizing, right? Yes, they want the gig worker to do the work, but they also really, really, really want the gig worker's data. And the data mining of everyone who engages in that work And the use of it for multiple purposes, which, you know, I I get into a little bit in in the piece and in other pieces, is where the real corporate interest is. And it's also quite dangerous because we're seeing this confluence of forms of monopoly power that we've never seen before. This is what's qualitatively new about the digital economy. We're both seeing unprecedented levels of capital concentration. Think about a company like Amazon, which has pretty much crowded out the space for many others, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so there's the capital concentration and the market monopolization, but there's also data monopolization. The reason they've been able to do it is because they've been able to monopolize data. And that too is what companies like Uber want to do. They want to crowd out all the competitors by having the best possible data on the information that's needed to really control transportation markets in municipalities around the world. So to fight back effectively, workers are going to need to get access to the rights over that data, and they're going to need to have the bargaining power to negotiate what's done with it. You describe the business model as unsustainable and exploitative. And I think folks can grok the exploitation, you know, as we learn more about it. But you don't hear very much about this model being unsustainable. What do you mean by that? So that relates back to the point I just made about data monopolization. Uh Think about it as a tragedy of the commons. If we had a company that could only stay in business by taking over a natural resource that was part of the commons, that was meant to belong to the commons, such as extracting water from a community. This is like to give you a real example of this. This is something, for instance, that Coca-Cola has been on the hook for and the subject of campaigns around the world because they tapped into water tables, depriving local communities of water in order to make this product, right? That is unsustainable. In the same way, this Extraction of data is really if we had those digital rights, if we were able to control the commons, because it is a commons, you'd find that these companies had very little advantage in a traditional, let's take Uber once again, transportation market. We know that that Uber has not, you know, a lot of the valuation of the company has been artificial and has been driven by the tech bubble. Right. We also know that they have continued to push down the 
fares that drivers receive. And in part, it's because they've tried to crowd the market, bring more people onto the platform, and then push down the actual cost and the price that they offer to drivers. But if you look at all of that in the context of a regulated transportation market, they could never survive. So it's both the fact that if they didn't have the data, they wouldn't be competitive, or if they had to pay for the data. And it's also the fact that they're using the data to manipulate labor market conditions and prices downward in ways that a traditional company could not do. And so there's not a level playing field. Well, sort of leading off from that, before Prop 22, when the court in California ordered DoorDash and Lyft and Uber and these companies to hire their drivers, ordered them to comply with labor law, Uber and Lyft threatened to shut down in California rather than comply. Their official company posture was, we don't want to. I feel like government will allow and pundits sometimes will turn a blind eye to people who go under. This very sad. That's too bad for them. But somehow we rarely or ever hear it stated plainly, if Uber can't do its business in a way that serves workers and the public interest, then Uber should go out of business. You know, Um, that idea is somehow unserious. It's so interesting with this work that I've been doing in other countries and looking at other cities. And it's been so amazing to me how brazen sometimes these companies are Mm -hmm. at going to municipal or state governments and claiming they can't possibly do business if they're forced to abide by the regulations that other firms abide by. And then in other countries, when they've been told no, they figured it out. So some of that is just purely like they're just, it's it's kind of a crazy ethos in the sector that really seems to be premised on, if we can get away with it, let's get away with it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to coming into a market and saying, let's figure out what the local regulations are and how we do business in this jurisdiction. The stories range from London to Johannesburg to, to Sydney, Australia, and in different ways, uh, court cases coming up in multiple jurisdictions that have pushed back and said, well, no, you are going to abide by local regulations. And then either they abide by the local regulations or they don't exist, but somehow other transportation firms manage to take over the market. So it's not as though people are not getting around <laughs> in those places where Uber cannot operate. Well, we're going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Bama Athreya. Her piece, Five Ways the Biden Labor Team Can Defend Workers Against the Lawless Digital Economy, is up on inequality.org. And you can learn more about the podcast, The Gig, at thegigpodcast.com. Bama Athreya, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for our newsletter extra or join our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.